Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. Good evening. Welcome to the February 2nd, 2016 edition of Learning Well on Edge Talk Radio. My name is Elise Markwam-Johns, and I'm delighted you've joined us for this evening's program. The Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, brings you Learning Well the first Tuesday of each month, and we want to thank them for their continuing sponsorship. Each month, we interview leaders in the field of integrative and holistic health, and many of these leaders are really transforming the world of health and wellness, and tonight is certainly no exception. In just a few moments, I'll introduce our guest, Dr. Ronald Peters, who is the author of Edgework, Exploring the Psychology of Disease. Dr. Peters is an accomplished writer and lecturer and is highly effective in helping people learn from their health problems and transform stress and disease into healing and health. And we also want to acquaint you with some of our other upcoming Learning Well guests. Next month on March 1st, Dr. Adam Perlman will be joining us. Dr. Perlman is the Executive Director for Duke University's Integrative Medicine Program, and he's also been the Chair for the Consortium of Academic Health Centers for Integrative Medicine. This is a consortium comprised of 44 leading academic medical centers which have integrative medical programs. And the following month, on April 5th, Dr. Bruce Lipton, author of the best-selling book, The Biology of Belief, will be with us. Dr. Lipton began his career as a cell biologist and is an internationally recognized leader in bridging science and spirit. His research findings fueled one of today's most important fields of study, the science of epigenetics. And two major scientific publications derived from these studies defined the molecular pathways connecting the mind and body. His most recent work is uh, book is Spontaneous Evolution, Our Positive Future and a Way to Get There from Here. Other future guests over the next few months will include Dr. Kathy Kemper, who is a director of the Center for Integrative Health and Wellness and a professor of pediatrics at Ohio State University. Dr. Kemper is recognized internationally as the founder of the field of integrative pediatrics and is frequently consulted by media. Her latest book, Authentic Healing, will be released in early March, and she'll be joining us on Learning Well on May 3rd. Michelle Geelan is a national CBS news anchor turned positive psychology researcher who will be with us on June 7th. She is the best-selling author of the book Broadcasting Happiness and is the founder of the Institute for a Applied Positive Research. She's partnered recently with Arianna Huffington to study how transformative stories fuel success. And she's also a graduate of the Applied Positive Psychology Program at the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen will be our guest on July 5th. Dr. Remen was one of the very first to recognize and document the psychological and spiritual impact of cancer on people and their families. She's a clinical professor of family and community medicine at the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine and the founder and director of the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness at Commonweal. She is one of the pioneers of relationship-centered care and integrative medicine and is the author of the best-selling books, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings. I also want to let you know that all Learning Well programs are archived, and you can listen to programs featuring such past guests as Dr. Henry Emmons, Dr. Norm Sheely, and Mary Hayes Greco by going to normandale.edu forward slash continuing dash education forward slash learning dash well. It's our hope that the information and ideas that you hear tonight on Learning Well, as well as every month, will not only enhance your health, career, and relationships, but also provide practical tools that can benefit you both personally and professionally and provide tools and ideas that you can share with those who are important to you, friends, family, loved ones, clients, or patients. And as I mentioned at the top of the program, our sponsor for Learning Well is the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis. And they're just 
some wonderful classes coming up at Normandale, so I'd like to take just a few moments to let you know about a few of them in case you might be interested. Restorative yoga starts tomorrow, Wednesday, February 3rd from 6.30 to 7.30. This is a six-week-long course focusing on teaching how to calm the mind and body through a focus on deep breathing and gentle postures. Benefits include a release of physical tension and the opportunity to learn how to activate the relaxation response to reduce overall stress. And a four-course certificate program on the foundations of homeopathic medicine will begin on Saturday, February 20th from 9 to 4 p.m. This class will cover the basics of homeopathy including how to engage the body's natural defenses, how remedies are made, and what the common applications of homeopathy are. An advanced energy medicine certificate course will run from Saturday, February 27th through April 16th from 9 to 4 with one additional Tuesday evening class. This certificate program is intended for those who have already completed the energy medicine certificate course and are looking to further their learning and practical application of energy medicine techniques and learnings. The focus will be on understanding your own healing gifts, empowerment and boundary requirements, plus much more. And a self-mastery class will begin on Tuesday, March 1st from 6 to 9 p.m. and run through Tuesday, March 15th. The emphasis of this series of classes will be on developing natural abilities, expanding awareness and sensitivities, and harnessing the power of body, mind, and spirit. And then our muscle testing certificate program will be held every Thursday at 6 to 8 p.m. from March 3rd through March 17th. And this course will cover how to test for emotional imbalances, food or substance sensitivities, and how to use the muscle testing technique for general pain relief. And there are several different applications of muscle testing which will be presented. If you would like information about these or any other classes or programs at Normandale Community College, Integrative Health Education Center. I know they'd love to hear from you, so please call 952-358-8343 or you can email Normandale at normandale.edu forward slash CE. We are absolutely delighted to have as our guest tonight Dr. Ronald Peters. Dr. Peters graduated from Stanford University with honors. He then attended UCLA School of Medicine and also obtained a master's in public health at the UCLA School of Public Health. And recognizing the limitations of conventional medical training with its emphasis on drugs and surgery, he's devoted the past 40 years to the study of integrative or functional medicine. He worked at the Pritikin Longevity Center in Los Angeles and then developed the Inner Health Program. Looking more deeply into the nature of disease, he studied with master teachers for 20 years and came to understand the unity of mind and body. He believes that mind-body medicine is an essential and unique healing approach that allows people to experience the timeless truth that consciousness creates both health and disease. He summarized the formative power of the conscious and unconscious mind in his book, Edgework, Exploring the Psychology of Disease. Dr. Peters is an accomplished writer and lecturer and helps people learn from their health problems and transform stress and disease into health and healing. Welcome, Dr. Peters. We thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you for having me. Well, I we were talking before we went on air, actually, about your center, and you were telling me some fascinating things about the people that you're working with and the kinds of things you're doing. So I hope you'll take just a few moments to tell our listeners a little bit more about the work that you're currently doing. Well, <clears throat> my journey in medicine has been, you know, to find the cause of illness, which naturally flows into understanding integrative or functional medicine which can provide answers as to why people get sick versus the model I was trained in at UCLA, which is primarily for chronic illness to suppress symptoms. So that study of integrative medicine is an ongoing, wondrous journey, exciting journey. But the further I got into this, I realized that the mind has a governing influence. The problem is the mind is 80% unconscious, and the unconscious mind contains all of the unowned pain and 
all of the <clears throat> unacceptable parts of our personality that we keep hidden away. And so that trying to make that useful for people so they could understand how they what was going on before an illness and learn from that experience is a big part. And eventually it gets into spirituality too, you know, spirituality not from a religious perspective, but so anyway, we have a lot of different practitioners. We have a, a woman who was told in her in her uh, t- teens that she would be dead in her 20s with a neurodegenerative disease similar to Stephen Hawking's, the physicist. He's 71 years old. She's now 55. And what she did is she had the wherewithal to go into her unconscious mind and heal those deep wounds that were carried there. She did have a abusive childhood. So <clears throat> she she can kind of guide some of our patients that really do want to find out what the causes are for their illness along with their integrative therapies for the body. Then we have um, a lot of IV therapies and um, pulse magnetic field therapies. We use nutrients. Uh, we have brainwave optimization where you you evaluate the electrical activity in the brain to determine symmetry in various regions. You can identify PTSD, anxiety, ADD patterns, and then through a process of uh, synchronization over four days, you can bring those parts that are out of synchrony into synchrony. You know, you could say that the body, any disease, is a lack of synchrony. So we have a lot of different tools, and uh, it's quite exciting. You know, people come because they're sick of being sick. You know, they want, they, you know, they had cancer. They took chemo and radiation. Now it's seven years later, and it's back again because they failed to find the cause. They, they, They failed to promote health as part of the treatment. So it's quite an exciting place. We have a good time. (laughs) And you're in Scottsdale, which is a wonderful place to be as well. Yeah, Scottsdale, Arizona, Mind Body Medicine Center. And Dr. Peters, your book um, is called Edge Work, Exploring the Psychology of Disease. And I, what, what, what did you actually mean by edge work? What, what, uh, how would you explain that title? Give us a little background on that, if you would. Well, there's a there's an edge inside of us, uh, an area that we don't understand ourselves. You know, we don't understand what's going on in the unconscious mind. There's self-knowledge and self-realization and self-understanding is like a focus of many traditions, spiritual and psychological as well. So <clears throat> edge work is to to move the boundaries of self-knowledge into those unknown areas in response to the experience of disease, which is the purpose of disease is to produce healing. I believe the purpose of cancer is to produce healing. And so understanding oneself better, prompted by sometimes the very intense experience of disease, is uh, a very useful and powerful approach. I'm curious what led you toward a whole, this more holistic approach to your medical practice. What what happened that took you there? Well, I tried family medicine after UCLA, and I realized I didn't like what I was doing. I was seeing complex patients, you know, patients with hypertension, diabetes, anxiety, depression, irritable bowel, chronic headaches, chronic fatigue, and I was giving them a symptomatic medicine. You know, I felt like I wasn't serving them well. You know, the, the, we don't want to suppress a symptom. We want to use that symptom as a marker for healing. So <clears throat> that's where I began this ongoing exploration of functional medicine to try to understand the digestive tract and try to understand hormone balance in the adrenals and the thyroid, try to understand how the mind works, neurotransmitters and patterns of neurotransmitter imbalances that are seen commonly with anxiety and depression. So that's still moving onward. Uh, my, My focus on consciousness, actually, I worked with two master teachers, very powerful teachers who... 
one of one of them could see the unconscious mind. The unconscious mind is an aggregate of emotional pain that we buried in childhood to survive childhood. Children that are abused, abandoned, um, abused in many different ways, neglected. There are tremendous emotions that occur in a child, and children automatically suppress those powerful feelings. It's a survival mechanism. It's kind of like a soldier who sees a horrific battle scene will block it out of his mind because it's way too much. You know, a newborn child, I mean, sometimes you hear the stories of the child who has the cord wrapped around his neck and nearly dies at birth, nearly nearly strangles himself at birth. Or the child who's abandoned at birth by mother and given to in adoption to really beautiful parents, but that pain of abandonment for the most important person in that infant child's life is intense. There's research that shows that uh, loss of mother is a fear likened unto the fear of death. And just because the child is... I mean, we believe these intense feelings are occurring intrauterine, and they certainly occur at birth and thereafter. So the <clears throat> these these create the patterns that recreate themselves later in life. For example, the example I often give is a child a two- or three-year-old little girl. She has an alcoholic father. He comes home at night, and he kind of terrorizes the family, and there's yelling and screaming and violence, and and she's just cowering to protect herself. So she seeds into the unconscious mind automatically, not thinking about it, lots of fear, lots of uh, grief and sadness, lots of anger. These deep emotions, they're pushed into the unconscious mind. And they're kind of wrapped up in these rudimentary belief systems that the world isn't safe, relationships are not safe, you can't trust, on and on and on. And they will continue to operate at an unconscious level. You know, the reason people worry is because they have quite often an unconscious belief that something bad is going to happen. You know, it's like these these unconscious programming continues on. So we know from research that that little girl, when she grows up, she's likely to attract an alcoholic relationship with surprising frequency. Her conscious mind knows better, but her conscious mind feels this person is a is a great person. I love this person. The unconscious mind according to Harville Hendricks, as well as my teachers, makes the final choice as to who your mate is because this is the person that will help me heal heal the wounds of childhood. So at the age of 25 or 25 or 23, when the alcoholic behavior starts, now the woman can discharge her fear and her anger. She can realize that anger is a useful emotion to set boundaries and say, no, this is not okay. You know, she can cry her tears and she can, and in so doing, she's healed the wound. She's healed the wound. So that alcoholic relationship is not meant to be some poor victim experience, but rather it's highly selected and archetyped by the conscious and unconscious mind for the purpose of healing these deep wounds. Dr. Peters, can... can someone like that heal their own wounds, or do do we all need help in doing that? David Viscott talked about the natural therapeutic experience. The natural therapeutic experience is is when a person sustains the natural expression of emotion. Babies are born expressing emotion. (laughs) It's standard equipment. You don't have to teach a child to express feeling. They all do. But as children grow up, they're often told that little boys shouldn't cry and little girls shouldn't get angry and other dysfunctional beliefs. And so they believe that. Or they can have such an intense childhood experience of abuse in many different ways that the unconscious mind says, I don't want to touch feeling. It's just too much. For whatever reason, they suppress emotions. So when they encounter the dramas in life, all of which are archetyped, we are the director of our theater in co-creation with those around us, in co-creation with society. Many of the beliefs are collective beliefs, you know, many of the the beliefs in relationships. So we create our experience. And so if we 
happen to sustain the ability to express our feelings, then it can be called a natural therapeutic experience. And you don't need to read books like Edgework or any other self-help book. You can, but many of us don't do that. You know, many people don't express their feelings, and they have many, many, many good reasons why they can't. You know, I've heard them all. Nobody wants to suppress love and joy, but they think they can stuff the anger, fear, sadness, and pain. So emotion is the is the is the the energy of life joy and happiness and creativity as well as sadness grief i mean i believe that when people suppress grief they become depressed you know and to go get a zoloft pill or prozac is a good for big pharma sales but it's not necessarily good for the patient in terms of their own growth and self-understanding you know, in your book, one of the people you talked about was a patient that you called Mary who came to your office about two months after having a bilateral mastectomy for breast cancer, and she also had rheumatoid arthritis. And you took a very interesting approach with her. I wondered if you might share that story of Mary and how you worked with her with our listeners. Well, <clears throat> breast cancer, breast cancer... The personality profile for cancer patient that is emerges in the literature, and this literature is pretty well established. It's just that much of it was occurring back in the 40s and 50s, um, and then when you know in the 30s and 40s and 50s, and then when chemo and radiation came, everybody forgot about these kinds of approaches. You know, interestingly. Back in the 1800s, 1700s, every surgeon, every doctor knew that cancer occurred in the melancholic type. Every doctor knew. He didn't have CT scans and fancy lab tests. He just had to talk to his patient. And they all knew that this, that the psychological morose, uh, suppressed patient is the one that got cancer. So what happens with a cancer patient is that they suppress their emotions. They learned in childhood, either from intense emotional pain or whatever, so they enter adult life and they they create a drama in their life because the unconscious mind wants to heal its wounds. See, the wounds in the unconscious mind are like wounds anywhere else in the body. They have a natural healing mechanism. The natural healing mechanism for the uh, a splinter in your foot is you need to like take a look at it and pull out the splinter and wash it out and it stings a little bit, but then it will heal. You just can't ignore it or it will fester and get worse. With emotional wounds, the natural healing mechanism is to create dramas in life for the purpose of allowing the feeling to come up and be discharged, kind of what is revealed is healed, you know. But cancer patients don't do that. So they they have some drama in their life, and they don't discharge their emotions. They run away from it for various good reasons, and they create it again, and sometimes again and again, and they develop this hopeless, helpless kind of attitude. You know, the, the despair is the is the late stage it's like on an un- i believe it's almost like a quantitative effect in the unconscious mind when the despair reaches a certain level cancer becomes a way out of the pain and uh <clears throat> so those are the people that and when it comes to rheumatoid arthritis so you need to help people see you know it's terrifying to get cancer you know you want to empower people you want to you want you, like norman cousins he, when he realized that he created his ankylosing spondylitis and his severe low back pain at UCLA back in the 80s or 70s whenever it was then he was empowered he could do something about it when you realize that you created this unknowingly and that you have the tools now to find a way to heal these deep wounds, then your chances of long-term recovery are much greater. When it comes to uh, rheumatoid arthritis, that's an inflammation. That's anger. I had a patient once whose husband left, ran away with another woman, and she had two young children, and she was furious, you know, but she didn't express her anger. And over the course of... Uh, several years, excuse me, she uh, developed rheumatoid arthritis. It's like an inflammation, a hotness. These are the patterns. See, the complexity of the 
chemical nature of the body is beyond human understanding. Most doctors don't understand the cause of most illnesses. You know, quite often we just translate the into Latin, and that's <laughs> <laughs> called that a diagnosis. So, but when it comes to the relationship between consciousness and the body, it's actually quite simple and metaphorical. You know, people with low back pain do not feel supported in life, either financially or in relationships. People with shoulder pain feel burdened. People with digestive issues, they they can't digest the experiences in their life to create meaningful nutrition out of the life experiences they're having. And it goes on and on. When it comes to rheumatoid arthritis, they're just re- there's this heat and anger, and, and so, <coughs> pardon me. So anyway, um, when you have people begin to understand these deeper patterns, many people will embrace it enthusiastically. Some won't. I believe some want out. You know, and they're going to do the chemo and the radiation, and, and the conscious mind wants to heal, but the unconscious mind has too much despair, too much grief and sadness, and cancer is a way out of that pain. Mm-hmm. Is that true for all kinds of cancers that you see that, no matter where they manifest in the body? When it comes to the child with cancer, everybody's going to say, well, if we create our experience, what about the three-year-old with cancer? Or even the newborn with cancer. These are really excellent inquiries. I think for us to understand the full dimensions of the human experience, we have to expand our understanding of what humanity is all about. You know, that we also are spiritual beings. And and (laughs) so... For me to for me to explain and explore many of these possibilities, it it requires this greater understanding of the human experience. And I don't know if we want to go in that tonight, but when it comes to the average adult with cancer, these tools are pretty reliable. When I see a cancer patient come in, I I ask them first about the disease because they want they want the disease treated, you know. They don't want to be told it's in your head, you know. They want it. They want the body to be treated, and it should be treated. But then, at the end of the session, or towards the latter part of the session, you ask them about what was going on in your life in the three to five years prior to the diagnosis, <coughs> and that's when they'll <coughs> that's when they'll light up. It's almost like they know. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a burden they want to discharge. And they'll talk about the long-term problems. I ask them, has there ever been a time in your life when you said, this is too much, I can't take it anymore? A sense of overwhelm. And I'm not referring necessarily to suicide, but to a feeling of just overwhelmed. And many people have this. And it can be transient and it goes away, or it can be persistent. And when it's persistent, that's when people really suffer. And they don't have the tools to to understand how to get themselves out of the situation. It doesn't mean the tools aren't there. It's just they don't have the tools. And that's what our job as healers is, is to provide them with a variety of ways to understand themselves better, to make the edge between the known part of self and the unknown part of self, to expand that. Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious mind conscious, it will run your life, and you will call it fate. Many <clears throat> many researchers have suggested that the real essence of spiritual process is self-realization, where you do make the unconscious mind conscious. Well, in my opinion, that's the purpose of disease. <clears throat> Get your attention. This is the work you need to do. And the motivation is high, because if you don't do it, you could die, you know. You know, we most of us, I think, uh, realize that stress can tr- contribute to the beginning of disease, but you also think that emotional release is important for pre- preventing disease and that it's also important to have a creative outlet for emotional pain as well as a passionate pursuit of some kind that gives your life a sense of purpose. I, I think those are fascinating 
uh, thoughts, and I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit more for us, this sense of purpose and the creative <clears throat> outlet. Well, I often tell patients there's two things that keep you healthy beyond anything else. Number one, expressing your feelings in a responsible manner. <clears throat> I'm not telling people when they get angry to punch somebody's lights out or anything. I'm just saying you can responsibly say, I feel hurt, I feel angry when blank happens. The second thing that sustains health better than anything else is the patient who follows their excitement, follows their passion. You know, periodically you hear about the guy who's 104 years old and the newspaper reporter comes up to the his home and says, what's your secret? And he, he will inevitably say... <laughs> I smoked a cigar and had a shot of vodka every day. <laughs> <laughs> but you can be you can be rest assured that that just naturally for that person he he lets you know what he feels. You can't push him around. He expresses his feelings and also he does what he enjoys doing. You know, I think our connection to our spirituality is our excitement, our imagination. And people, your excitement will guide you. It'll guide you into untold opportunities of personal experience. So those are the two things that are very powerful. Lawrence LaShawn, back in New York, in Manhattan, he he worked with 200 cancer patients in long-term psychotherapy. And his conclusion was they suppressed their feelings. They had a lot of anger and rage they didn't let out. And number two, they didn't have a passionate pursuit in life. They, they they didn't have a song they wanted to sing. You know, they didn't have excitement. You know, I tell patients, follow your excitement and don't settle for anything else, even if it pays well, you know, because <clears throat> <laughs> it's, it's not worth it, you know. You know, you bring up Lawrence Lashon, and I just remember one of the examples in one of his books that struck me the most strongly was his uh, telling about a young man who had been a member of a gang and uh, for many years. And then after a while, many of those fellow gang mon- members who provided a sense of community either end up being killed or um were imprisoned, and that family sort of disintegrated. And so LaShawn was working with him, trying to come up with, how can I help this young man? He has cancer now. What what would give him the same feeling that that gang membership gave him, that rush of adrenaline when there was some kind of gang activity, that sense of family? And the idea he came up with was to possibly get this young man a job as a firefighter. And sure enough, through some heaven knows what magic he did, he he ended getting him a job in that arena, and it was a perfect match for what yes. he had, had as a gang member. Yes, yes. And the cancer went into remission. It was you a know, there was a story. there was a study done way back in nineteen nineteen eighty eight by published in the British Journal of Medical Psychology, <clears throat> and they took fifty patients, a hundred patients with cancer in New York City. They all had chemotherapy, radiation surgery, whatever was indicated, and half of them, randomly selected, uh, just had that, just had chemo and radiation. The other half were put into a treatment program that they termed biobehavioral training or behavioral training. They were encouraged to express their emotions and become independent, taught various coping mechanisms, you know, and they did this over the course of 13 years, at the end of this 13-year period, the group that had the intervisions, 50 of them, 45 were still living, and five had died of causes other than cancer. <clears throat> In the control group, 19 were still living, 16 had died of cancers, and uh, 15 of other causes. So this is very powerful medicine. This is this is very powerful healing. You know, when people look to see what's going on within me, what is it within me that needs this experience? See, we're taught in our society to play victim. You know, every war is started by governmental victim mentality. <clears throat> and we're taught to be victims, you know, and we feel like we have no power problem is nobody's a victim everybody creates their experience um you know that message comes from quantum physicists as well as spiritual teachers we are creating our reality you know the quantum conundrum of einstein and niels bohr and others 
they tried to separate the observer from the external reality, and they couldn't do it because the consciousness was creating the experience. Consciousness somehow creates a matrix for which we can have an experience in this wonderful playland of third dimension for the purpose of growth and self-knowledge. And <clears throat> so uh, they... Uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> I, I also wanted to check in with you about um, the whole really the whole physiological aspect of how thoughts and emotions affect us at the cellular level because you've said that the immune system, the digestive tract, the muscles, and all the organs listen to our thoughts via the messenger service of the neuropeptide network. And could you just tell us a little bit more how this actually works in our bodies? Well, <clears throat> these... The human body is a hundred trillion cells, more or less. It's way too complicated to be orchestrated through neurology. It's way too complicated to be orchestrated through hormones or even neurotransmitters. It's orchestrated based on an interface between a biofield. The interface between consciousness and the physicality of the human body is this biofield. That's what orchestrates the human body and it's all its complexity. One of my teachers said that the human body is a condensation of thought and emotion. What you believe about your body, what you believe about anything becomes your reality. If you believe it's sick and weak, and then it becomes that. If those beliefs are sustained over time, you add in a lot of suppressed emotion, and then the body becomes the fabric for expressing that emotion. You know, so understanding the human body, neurotransmitters are good. They're they're helpful to understand parts of it, but basically, your body is listening to every thought. You know, that's what the field of epigenetics is all about. You know, if you're the DNA, the DNA is like a hard drive and the epigenome, this mysterious layer on top of the uh, DNA strand is like the software. And so we, we, we're in charge of that software we, through our thoughts, through our lifestyle, through our patterns of and our mind style. So when we understand it in this way, then we can create the reality that we want. The problem is, the problem is, and this is the curious thing, and it's the reason why some people won't do this type of edge work. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not like everybody just grabs the book and goes in there. and Because when the child suppresses painful emotions, there's like a fear at the time that the emotions are occurring in early childhood, some people believe that the operating system for the human ego is set in the first couple of years of life mm -hmm. before we could even remember anything. So <clears throat> that operating system goes on and functions thereafter, and the fear associated with these <laughs> deep and painful emotions is what prevents the adult from exploring them because there's some deep fear that if I bring up these deep pain, I could die. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a uh, <clears throat> there's a Jungian analyst call I think it's Callshed who says the survival system of the child becomes the prison of the adult. And so it's not everyone who wants to leap into self knowledge and self-work you know we look around in our society and the vast majority are playing victim and complaining all the time so you know i was i was really surprised in your book that when you stated that people who get heart attacks uh, of those people only 30 to 40 percent have the traditional risk factors which which we always think of the smoking the high fat diet lack of exercise obesity so I'm curious, what are your thoughts on what the what are the factors that do point to heart attack risk? When I see a when I see a patient, um, you know, quite often they will have high cholesterol. You know, certainly if they eat the American diet, which is high in cholesterol, and stress will elevate cholesterol as well. So, what I think with with um, 
early on, many years ago, we we heard about type A behavior, and mm-hmm. I think there's some useful aspects of that in the sense that a child, if he's taught early on in life that he will be loved if he produces, if he you know, if he works hard on the family business, if he gets that paper route at the age of eight, ten, or twelve, and that he will be loved because his parents are working hard and they give him that message. So that's the programming in the unconscious mind. So then he grows up feeling that I'll be loved if I produce, but it doesn't work that way, you know. <laughs> It just may not work out that way, and it creates this sense of hostility, you know, the the hypercoagulability, the blood viscosity, you know, the anger, the the lack of love for oneself and love for others. <clears throat> so those are the people that shut down their heart, you know, okay. and can, can develop coronary artery disease. And I'm curious, too, about what the current thinking uh, on your part is about social isolation and its impact on health and illness. Oh, I think it's incredibly powerful. I mean, some people believe that, you know, sudden infant... I I don't... We are... We are the ultimate state of growth for all people is to realize a a kind of unity consciousness, you know, that we're all one giant family living on this planet together and we need to take care of each other. And when people are isolated, you know, that's a tremendous, deep, enduring pain that will create, create all manner of illness, you know. It's it's very important for people to feel like they belong, that they're loved. And if you can't love you know, you can have love for yourself. There's, uh, you know, women. <clears throat> women are like the biological... Women and their unconditional love for their children is like, the, in many ways, a foundation for society because a mother will take care of her child selflessly. And she does that for the child and for the family. And then when the child when the children leave the home and the nest is empty then many women in our society become kind of you know thin and frail and anxious and worried and sickly you know they develop osteoporosis and heart disease and other medical problems but if they can apply that same sense of self-love that they that love that they apply to their children and to their family at the at the change of life, if they can apply that love to themselves, then that is what creates the grandmother, you know, truly the grandmother. So self-love or love from others is, you know, spiritual teachers talk about love as the glue that holds the universe together. It's it's beyond our understanding what love is. <laughs> it's powerful medicine. One of the studies that you that you uh, talk about in your book is the one about the Italian American community in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, and what happened is as researchers studied how that town changed throughout. Could you tell us a little bit? I think that's a fascinating one. Well, a similar thing is happening with um, these green. I think they're called blue zones. You know, there are some areas where you know, high-fat diets and don't seem to have that much an effect on people because there's a strong sense of community, you know. And some of these areas in Italy, in the village, you can't hide anything. You know, if you're dealing if you're dealing with uh, depression, anger, you know, grandpa, uncle, somebody's going to sit you down. They're going to know and they're going to bring it out of you. And there, that that's the community healing effect, once again, based on love. It's just a natural part of these societies to have everybody share their pain. Human beings <clears throat> will let go of their happiness long before they let go of their pain, you know. 
one of the things I really enjoy about your book uh, also is the fact that you share so many interesting stories of some of your patients that you've worked with. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a couple more of those stories with us. In particular, there was a story about a, a patient named Virginia and one about David. Could you just share some of those stories with us about people that you've worked with and what what you've worked, how you've worked with them and what some of the outcomes have been? Uh, I writing that book a long time ago. I have many stories that are much more current. You okay. know, basically <clears throat> every patient that I see with a significant medical problem, such as cancer, or irritable bowel, or depression, they need to understand what's going on in the few years prior to the onset of illness. You know, I had a, <clears throat> a lady. Uh, whose two children developed cancer. I think there was a genetic problem with phase one, phase two detoxification, so they're more prone to, you know, mutations and toxins that become more powerful in their body. And she just, <laughs> she just couldn't stop worried. It was impossible. You know, she she got cancer as well. You know, she got breast cancer, and, and the breast, once again, the metaphor of illness, the breast has to do with nurturing, of course. And um, so women who get breast cancer, uh, quite often you will see that the left breast, the one that, uh, in a, in a right-handed woman, often has to do with a stress conflict with child, and the right breast often has to do with stress conflict with a non-child loved one. So <clears throat> for her, she just uh, had so much pain. She couldn't let it go. She just created so much suffering for herself. You know, it, 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 if you think about it, it really, it does not make any... Hello? Are you there? I'm here. Okay, so we must have just lost connection there for a very brief moment, but go ahead. Okay, so <clears throat> it's just, uh, you know, we have so much fear inside of us. I'm writing an article for Health Conscious News about the amount of fear programmed to the human being. I mean, we turn on the news and we're told how much we should worry about things. You know, the news feeds us this enormous amount of fear, <clears throat> and for the child there is a lot of fear. I believe that becoming friendly with fear is a real important thing for all of contemporary mankind. And the reason that's an issue is because the human stress system enabled our ancestors to survive danger by running away and protecting the village food supply and running from predators. But in modern times, that same survival system, the fight-flight branch of the autonomic nervous system is killing us off through stress-related diseases. So how can a survival system for million, for hundreds of thousands of years now be killing us off? It's because our dangers are no longer predators, and for most of us, for some certainly, but for the average American, the fear is their own mind just running these stories in their head about what could go wrong in the future and what did go wrong in the past and all of these painful emotions. So never has it been more important for people to to uh, realize that when you have these experiences <clears throat> of worry and anxiety, that you just don't run with them, but instead you uh, you find the cause, you know. You don't want to go through life with the belief that something bad is going to happen, and that's what worry is. In my lectures, I ask, I ask people, how many people worry? And everybody raises their hand. And then I ask, how many people can tell me the benefit of worry? And nobody, a few people, <laughs> a few people will valiantly try to come up with some benefit. But what they're doing is they're, they're, they're mixing planning and preparation with fear. The fear doesn't help anything. So for humanity to find the source of fear within themselves, that's a very important thing, you know, to make the stress system once again our ally. I remember Dr. Wayne Dyer talking once about that whole concept of worry and, and saying that, you know, how many of the things we worry about actually happen? I mean, it's... <laughs> 
It's a minuscule yeah. percentage. Right. So we waste all that time and energy on something that never happens for the most part. Yeah, what you fear, you draw near. It's like praying. Well, somebody said that worry is like praying for a bad outcome. <clears throat> Because you're focusing your attention on a bad outcome. And so the creative power of consciousness is focused on a bad outcome. So therefore, bad outcomes. And then we complain <laughs> and feel victimized. You know, you talk about the fact that responsibility can exist on two different levels, both the conscious and unconscious. Um, the conscious, I think we can all understand, but... It, can you talk a little bit more about the unconscious? Um, how do we take responsibility for what's going on in the unconscious? The, uh, the example would be somebody who wants to start a business, you know, and so he or she plans and prepares and gets consults and, you know, does everything carefully and sincerely, and then two years later, bankruptcy. So the conscious mind had the intention of a successful business. The unconscious mind had a different intention. The unconscious mind has the intention of healing the wounds of childhood, of making, of creating greater self-knowledge, to bringing the unacceptable parts of the personality into consciousness. So the unconscious mind had the need to own, to own these deep emotions of not being good enough or feeling you know, I'm not okay, I can't do it right, these these sadness and grief that is often said in childhood. So <clears throat> the unconscious intention prevails, you know, and uh, it's a powerful system. I mean, the newborn child is this beautiful, pristine nature. You know, you look into the eyes of a child, they're in a constant hypnotic trance state. And all these experiences are occurring to the child, you know, day and night. And and that pristine, spiritual, divine nature is so obvious to everyone. But then, parents doing the best they can, always, and society begins to program the child and so pretty soon they have these uh you know the person the ego structure and most of us have stressful life experiences of all different kinds i mean we wouldn't be down here if we weren't here to learn things and grow so <clears throat> living life wisely is to take dramas in life that we have created and finding, backtracking into consciousness to cry the tears and release the anger and the fear and identify the dysfunctional beliefs that are involved. And in in so doing, we give up the ways of the child. <clears throat> there's a remarkable there's a remarkable writer. Um, he wrote. It's called Confessions of the Christ Mind. He's like a farmer in the Midwest. His name is, uh, it'll come to me in a minute. And he says what he believed that Jesus meant, partially, at least metaphorically, when he said you must be born again, is that we become the conscious parent to the wounded parts of self. Because the first time around, we have parents who are doing the best they can. Even the worst parent is doing the best they can. But they were treated in the same way. They were treated in a cold way or a controlling way or even an abusive way or a fearful way. So first time around, we have parents that aren't Christ-like. So the second, now as adults, often based on the motivation of disease, we become the conscious parent. And we listen to that pain and the sadness and we cry the tears and we discharge the emotions and identify the dysfunctional beliefs and that becomes a powerful healing journey, an incredibly powerful healing journey. And one of the things that you also spend some time talking about is relationships and how situations we face in our relationships are an exact mirror of our of our inner state. And you also talk about some of the effective tools for transforming relationships. Can you just briefly touch on that for us? <clears throat> yes. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Harvell Hendricks says the same thing that I was taught by master teachers, is that 
your unconscious mind selection makes the final decision for your mate because this is the person that will help me heal the wounds of childhood. The conscious mind selects a mate because he or she is beautiful, I love him or her, and that's all good. But the final choice is made by the unconscious mind. So when the dramas start, that's the opportunity for bringing these unconscious issues into the light of consciousness. So people can do one of two things. They can they can play helpless victim, blame the other person, complain, you know, sing a sad tale of woe, on and on and on. Or they can try this new approach, which is I'm creating my reality. I certainly didn't create it consciously. <clears throat> so what is it with, about myself I need to learn? And that's that's not only is it truthful, not only is it accurate, empowering, but it's also the truth. And so relationships are perfect uh, theater for self-growth. So when somebody hurts your feeling, when your spouse hurts your feelings or yells at you or whatever it is, some people say that the unconscious mind writes a script for your spouse and hands it to him or her, and and they do the same thing, and that becomes the dance for the day. Interesting. <laughs> huh, very interesting. Yeah. Well, you've also talked the imp- uh, talked about the importance of living in the now. Could, can you just give us some suggestions? That is so hard to do for most of us. We're either thinking about what's happened or we're worrying about what's going to happen. Yeah. Give us any suggestions on how we can do this more effectively. You know, I often give the story of Eckhart Tolle, who was suicidally depressed for many years as a professor of literature. And one night in his despair, he said to himself, I can't take myself any longer. And suddenly it occurred to him there must be two of him, the part he can't take and the part that can't take that part. And that epiphany pushed him into a state of bliss, which lasted like six months or so, where he realized that his pristine consciousness was back, that it was no longer hidden under the layered heaviness of ego consciousness, all of which is based on fear and separation. (laughs) And he just, he didn't have to do anything to be happy. He said he sat on a... uh, park bench and he was in a state of bliss in the east they call it satchitananda a sense of joy <clears throat> so what he he says that this un, un uncontrolled mind is the source of all suffering it's the source of all suffering that's hell that ego which can never which is always me versus them the nature of ego is me versus them whether it's Another country, an, another work person, or a spouse, or whoever it is, it's me versus them. It's The ego is based on separation. And so um, what this, that's the source of pain. So in order to be in the now... You gotta. It, it takes effort. It's like the wild. It's like the elephant that charges into the village. The young elephant, and it can tear down the village, or the elephant trainer knows that this powerful young elephant could be a great asset to the village. But he also knows it's not going to be easy, and he's got to be patient. I think the best way to do meditation is go to a vipassana meditation retreat for ten days. And you'll meditate eight hours a day for ten days. And after the third or fourth day, you practically flip out. Because <laughs> you're, you're focused, right? You're, you're looking at your own ego straight in the eyeball. But then eventually you keep coming back to the meditation technique and you break through. You break you know, through. That, that it's you, blissful. That's a, that's a wonderful note to end on. And I'm sorry we have to conclude. This has been a fascinating discussion. I thank you so much for being with us this evening. And in closing, I'd like to not only thank Dr. Ronald Peters, I'd also like to thank the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College for sponsoring our monthly edition of Learning Well. And I'd like to invite you to please join us next month on Tuesday, March 1st at 6 p.m. Central Time for a conversation with Dr. Adam Perlman, who is the Executive Director for Duke University's Integrative Medicine Program and one of the authors of Mequilibrium, 14 Days to Cooler, Calmer, and Happier. 
And if you uh, enjoy the show, we also hope that you will let at least one other person know about our conversations on learning well. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, and we hope you can join us on March 1st. And until then, stay well. Hello? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.